Like I think of all the people that I have crossed paths with and who I've met in my life, but I wouldn't have had the conversation with Ralph Gilles who hired me if I hadn't been reading car magazine since I was five and reading automotive news cover to cover for the past 10 years. You know, you have to do all of those things so that when those opportunities come your way, you can make hay with them, you know, because because I guarantee you there's people crossing your path every day. But if you didn't have those years of preparedness, that moment is lost. I'm Dan Schulman, the president and CEO of PayPal and a longtime devotee of Krav Maga. Welcome to my podcast, Never Stand Still, where I explore some of the guiding principles I've learned in martial arts and interview world-class CEOs, creators, and changemakers about how those philosophies apply to their lives as they perform at the top of their game. Breaking into an industry where most people don't look like you is no easy feat. Not only is climbing the ladder difficult, but being a pioneer can be lonely. So how do you learn to identify the path if it hasn't been cut for you? How can you reframe your uniqueness into your calling card? And can you reach your hand out behind you to help the next generation rise? Here's Kelly Campbell with a pep talk to help you find your inner strength when you need it most. Hi, I'm Kelly Campbell. I've trained within the Krav Maga Worldwide System for over 20 years. I'm a fifth degree black belt and the highest ranking female instructor in the United States. When you find yourself defending yourself physically, you're most likely on your own. And the reality is no one is coming to save you. But the good thing is you don't need them to. You already have everything you need to face life's challenges inside you. So when the going gets tough, dig down deep and trust that you will get through this. These days, Beth Peretta is known as a trailblazer in motorsports. She was the first female director to lead a performance brand for an original equipment manufacturer. She also formed the first majority women team in IndyCar history. But before all of that, she was just a little girl helping her family fix up an old truck. I know you loved cars as a kid. I think your dad and your brother bought and restored vintage cars. Your dad even drove a 1930 Model A Ford to car shows, which is crazy to think about. So what was it at a young age that attracted you to motorsports? It's funny because that 1930 Model A was his daily driver at the time. So this is in the mid (laughs) seventies. So it was a 40 year old car. But if you think of like what, you know, there's no creature comforts in a 1930 anything. But I will say my dad's respect for, I gained his respect for cars and it was more like historic preservation. It was the archival side of it and the respect for history and and whatnot. So, but for me, I stumbled upon racing on television. So we weren't, we weren't a racing family. And although we were a car family, my dad was not a gearhead. Mm -hmm. He was more the guy that knew to make sure that he was going to hire the right guy to rebuild the engine. He respected what he didn't know. And ultimately though, 
flipping through the channels, I would stumble upon racing and came to love it and found it somewhat mesmerizing. Fast forward a couple of years. So my brother and father were working on this truck as a project because my brother actually had leukemia and acutely aware that he has it. And he, at I think at the age of 14, 13 or four, maybe 14 said, okay, I want to get a truck. We'll restore it. And then when I turn 16 and I get my driver's license, it'll be mine. And so that's what started this journey of, of getting this truck and restoring it. And so it was this project in the family and I was goodness, you know, three years old, four years old, five years old and bless them. They, included me when they could have excluded me as, you know, a little kid. And I think that was just more the sweetness of the dynamic of the family of knowing that we have this, you know, my brother's going through this challenging thing. And, and so my, my brother sadly died before the truck was finished and my dad didn't touch it for years and years. And it was not until I went away to college that my mom kind of made an offhanded comment like, oh, what? Because we still had this, this truck in parts. And when I say truck, when you restore something, you have like extra parts, you have <laughs> axles lying around. And my mom just sort of offhandedly said to my dad, like, what are we going to do? Like, you know, it's been sitting here for 10 years. You know, what should we do? Like, should we get rid of it? My dad said, you know what? I'm going to restore it because, you know, I feel like I owe it to my, my brother and the, and the yeah. project. And so he did. But in, because it had sat for so long, he kind of had to start over. So he finally finishes it, drives it, like would take it to Home Depot to get like bags of mulch. And, you know, it was, it was an additional car. It was just something fun. And it's a 1952 Ford F1 pickup truck, you know, three on the tree. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. can't get out of its mm-hmm. own way. It's, yeah. it's like a typical like workhorse pickup truck that people would have had at the time. Simultaneously, after my brother passed, I just started reading car magazines and just going headlong into it. And if you just don't have to peel the onion too much to figure out... It was because I was trying to take up what was missing, which is a typical thing that happens in families like that. When you go through something that's so challenging, the remaining sibling kind of winds up being, especially because then I was an only child, you kind of do things with your dad and things with your mom. And so I equated cars as something that my dad did with my brother. And so, you know, gosh darn it, I was going to you know, do that to the nth degree to make everybody happy. But I genuinely came to love it. And of course, like took it to the nth degree. And so then I became even in the family, like the car expert, because I knew every car on the road and and whatnot. And I didn't necessarily like you'd think that, oh, that's an obvious thing. Then why wouldn't you then just go on the path of working in automotive? No, didn't figure that out for years later. Went to school. I got a degree in broadcasting and film, wanted to make documentaries, worked in the alpine skiing business, And then after grad school, finally make a decision like, you know what? I think automotive would be a good place for me. So it seems circuitous and it it was circuitous, but to anyone that's known me is like, of course, this is what you're going to do for a living. So I think I just was the last to know. Beth had a passion and a personal connection to auto racing from a very early age. But before she could come back around to pursuing that, she and her family had some grieving to do. Unfortunately, this is a tragedy I'm all too familiar with. I didn't know that about your brother. I also had a sister who died at an early age. And yeah, I understand firsthand kind of the impact that that has on a family and everything you were talking about. And to be able to recover from something like that, to be able to help your parents as well recover from something like that is not an easy thing to go do. No, 
No, and I and I'm sure you went through the same thing. Like especially when it happens when you're young, you have a different appreciation for it as you get older in different ways. I don't have children, but I would imagine that if you know when you do have children, you realize, oh my gosh, this is what they went through. It's part of the reason why ultimately I named the team Peretta Autosport because I remember always knowing that my brother was the last with the name mm. in my family, and so when he passed, I remember people talking about that and that that was yeah. a thing that the name you know didn't go and it didn't go any further. And so when I was then having this opportunity to have the IndyCar team, I was thinking about it and. Because it's something, it's tough to put your name on any business, but on something that's so public, you know, I took some time to think about that, to consider it. And I ultimately decided to do because both my parents have passed, my brother's gone. So I'm the only one left. And I felt it would be a good way to honor because I didn't get here by myself. None of us have. And I thought, you know what, let me just do it as a little wink to why I'm here. And so I ultimately decided to call the name Peretta Autosport. And I will say that those first moments when I was at Indy and I saw all the team like wearing the stuff and it's my name on their shirt was a little bit, you know, but um, ultimately like on, on race day, seeing my name, you know, up in lights as it were, that probably is what made me the proudest. Seeing your family name on your cruise uniforms at the Indy 500 is a proud moment indeed. But before Beth could lead Peretta Autosport, she had to maneuver her way into a typically male-dominated industry. So how did she get her foot in the door? My first professional role in motorsport was actually when I was at Fiat Chrysler. So I was running the marketing and operations for the SRT brand, which is now, it, it was a trim level. They elevated it to its own brand. Now it's back down a trim level, which is unfortunate. But SRT, (laughs) the best analogy I can make is kind of like an American AMG. And so with that, and kind of just moving more upscale, they looked external to Fiat Chrysler to hire somebody for that role. And and I was the one that they hired. And with that job came running the motorsport programs for Fiat Chrysler. And the gentleman who hired me is a guy called Ralph Gilles, who's still there. He's the global head of design. Interestingly, he's of Haitian descent, uh, born in New York, grew up in Canada, but he's, he's a black man. And it's interesting because we could obviously share, mm-hmm. you know, stories about, about that. And it's not, all of this comes down to opportunity and giving people opportunity. And so I might've on paper, actually on paper, I probably looked like a great choice, but I didn't look like the average candidate to run the performance division and racing for a major car company. But Ralph is the guy who I met who wanted to take a chance on me. And then I had to sit with Sergio Marchione for the final interview to get hired. And and he hired me literally at the end of the interview. And I think part of that, taking that chance was because somebody had taken a chance on Ralph. So he knows full well the value of that. The funny thing though, the more I think of that is even when someone took a chance on Ralph, new graduate of you know design school, the College of Creative Studies in Detroit, which is one of the premier automotive design schools, he wasn't a risky bet. I wasn't a risky bet, but I didn't look like everybody else. So he was probably better placed to take that gamble on somebody that didn't look like everybody else because he was looking at life through his lens. That's one of the advantages of having a diverse team. When you have folks with varying perspectives, they can help identify assets and resources you may not have been able to recognize without them. But when you have to be the first one to break into the boys club, you might find yourself somewhat alone. So 
When I was in that role at Fiat Chrysler, I certainly didn't feel alone and I certainly didn't feel like a trailblazer because I had this amazing team that I was part of. But I remember I was at some sort of speaking engagement or something where there was all motorsport directors. There's actually this great photo when I'm in Paris accepting the invitation for us to race at Le Mans. And there's all the motorsport directors from around the world that had been invited to be at Le Mans. And I'm the only woman on, on the stage. And there have been times that I've been in meetings, even board meetings at FCA or corporate meetings, because I was basically Ralph's right hand. So sometimes if he would have to be in Italy for design things, I would be his proxy. And there were times I'd be in meetings where I was the only woman at the table. And I admit in the beginning, I was like, wow, this is cool. Like, look at me. And then you realize like, oh, no, no, this isn't cool at all. And it takes a while for you to kind of realize, oh, God, there's got to be more of us. I also realize that for white men to all, you, you don't know any different because you've always seen yourself. You've always seen yourself as president. You've always seen yourself as an astronaut. You've always seen yourself as a doctor, as a lawyer. But that's not your fault either. The concept. If you can see it, you can be it, is very real. And after seeing firsthand the lack of women in her industry, this actually became the basis for Beth starting her own team. In 2016, she launched Grace Autosport with the goal of taking a predominantly women's crew to the Indy 500 to get girls excited about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math education. So in 15, when I announced that we were going to do this in 16, the reason I announced a year early was very much by design to kind of just put it out there so that if I picked up the phone and called somebody and wanted to talk about it, I could point to the fact that it was a real thing and that there was media or that there was, you know, media coverage of it to say, oh, perhaps you've heard of my announcement. This is why I'm calling you. Mm -hmm. I also had support from Chevrolet. I actually was able to talk to both Chevrolet and Honda, the two suppliers to IndyCar. Both said that they would be willing to work with me. The Chevy package that they put together was just a little bit better than what Honda had offered. In fairness, I know the Chevy people a little more because we're in Detroit. We kind of all know each other. You've run into each other everywhere. The long and short of it, the why it was harder than than now is, and I've seen the, the sort of the sea change I'm working at a big three at the time at Fiat, yeah, still at Fiat Chrysler at the end of 14. And I see that we're losing engineers at a faster rate than they're coming back in. And that, and it was just attrition, natural attrition, and that it was a bit of a crisis, but I'm seeing it behind the scenes in real time. So I knew that there was work to be done. And I knew that racing was a way maybe to attract the attention of kids. So I will say the idea of Grace was brought to me by somebody else. It was actually a driver agent, this guy called Adrian Sussman, who's still a friend. He lives in Wales. He represents drivers. And he, he just said, hey, what about like an all-ladies team for the 500? And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, yeah, you could do that. And then I started thinking about it more and more. And the idea was like, but okay, you could do so much more with it. And again, he's saying it of like, hey, this is like a cool hook. I'm saying it from my perspective because I'm looking at it in the lens of I work for a car company and I know that there's something, some real work to be done. So if you're General Motors or Ford or Boeing, anybody, you're recruiting from colleges, you're going to college fairs. Colleges are recruiting from high schools, but the reality is we need to, I, I started doing a bunch of research and figured out, learned that you need to plant the seed much younger because we need to basically prime the pump and get more people into the funnel. And you can affect a kid's trajectory of what they want to be when they grow up from between the ages of 10 and 12. 
That's why every five-year-old wants to be a princess or a fireman because it's what they see. No six-year-old says, I want to be an actuary or I want to be the CEO of (laughs) PayPal unless they know the CEO of PayPal. It never occurred to them what that is and what you do all day. So true. Obviously, there's a connection between engineering and motorsports, but using the Indy 500 as a fun, high-octane career fair is innovative, out-of-the-box thinking. So it then became, okay, let's do something with it. And, and let's see if I can get General Motors or these big companies to start investing in kids, to start investing in that 10 to 12-year-old range. Back in 2015, which wasn't that long ago, they weren't hearing it because they, they could hear it like, oh, that's a great idea, but they couldn't measure the direct ROI. It was too long a walk. Mm-hmm. Now though, I think you're seeing everybody saying, yep, we need to invest in kids because if you are General Motors and you invest in a kid's program and that kid grows up to work at Ford, but Ford invested, it's the whole, it takes a village mentality. And we weren't quite there yet in 15, 16. So I think if anything, I just might've been early. Got it. The world has changed. And the idea of STEM education and STEM careers for girls and women is like all the chat now. But it was really just starting in 15 and 16. So that's the big answer. The micro answer is in 15, I had sat down with Roger Penske and he wanted to run with us in 16. But then there were some logistics challenges at the end of 15 and he kind of had a pivot and he's like, I can't run you in 16. Okay. But he told me this in like September of 15. So I had plenty of runway to change what I needed to change. So I wind up tying up with a different team. We were going to make the announcement in April that we were running at the end of May and literally two days before the press conference. And I'm talking scheduled press conference. we got the outfits got the whole thing, got the press release. The, yeah. the guy from Chevrolet is flying in for the press conference. It's going to be at Long Beach Grand Prix. Two days before the press conference, the team that I was going to be working with, the owner of the team called me and he's like, yeah, um, here's the thing. I think that the 500, I, it's funny. I never, like, I've never really told this out loud, but he wanted to change the terms of the deal. And mm. he, he used the excuse of like the 500 is too dangerous to have these women. And I only had like a couple of women. It was going to actually be a bit of a smoke and mirrors for that yeah. as a way to start. Yeah. Whereas this year's no smoke and mirrors. You guys all saw it. You saw the yeah. the, the uh, yeah. pit stops. Like you can't fake that. And when I say smoke and mirrors, I mean, okay, I was going to have some women dressed up that were basically going to be just apprentices, right? So on race day, are they going to be going over the wall? No, but they're like in the wings learning it. So that I say that as smoke and mirrors. It was still legit. It's just, they would have been earlier in the learning cycle. Correct. Yeah. So a couple of days before the press conference, now keep in mind at this point, the race is only six or seven weeks away, seven weeks right. away. He wants to change the terms of the deal. And he thinks that I'm going to, you know, he thinks I'm an abject rube. So he wants to still take my money, but then run us in races later in the season and put somebody else in the car for the 500 for basically a little bit more than the money I'm spending. Doesn't come to me and say, hey, I have a counter offer. Because what happens is we rent a seat for the 500. That's how it Mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. So you have full-time teams that might run three cars, but for the 500, they'll run like a fourth and fifth car. And if you're somebody that has money and a driver, you rent that car and the people. Got it. So I had the deal to rent the car and the people and bring in some extra people of mine, the ladies. And he gets squirrely and he change, he wants to change the terms of the deal. And he thinks I'm going to bite. Instead, I say no. And so I take my things and go. But now I've got seven weeks to find another dance partner, as it were. And it's literally, it's like musical chairs. Who's got space? I've got a Chevy engine. I also had a Honda engine. Technically, I, I had both. 
Chevy was even saying, if you need to even get in a Honda for this year, just do it. Like everybody was behind the scenes. I did have some amazing help. I had other people that could have been more helpful that weren't. And I still know who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, <laughs> Roger was super helpful. Even at the 11th hour, Roger Penske was super helpful with trying to help me get some parts that I needed. Anyway, so why it wound up being a tough musical chairs dance was there was a shortage of cars that year. It was 2016. It was a bit of a perfect storm. Other teams were caught out by it. It was the hundredth running. There were teams that would normally run extra cars that chose not to that year because of schedule conflicts. So it was just a weird- Weren't there only 33 cars that ran that year? And only 33 cars ran that year. And there were a few of us on the sidelines. Exactly right. And- Ultimately, the car, the last car, the last available chassis that I could find, I drove down. I mean, I was driving back and forth to Indy. I live in Detroit. So I'm back, yeah. you know, five hour drive back and forth. Three weeks before the 500, I find one last car. It, it was a shade away from being a barn find, but it was in a shop. I go there. I get a couple of experts to go look at the car with me because I'm not an expert to look at a car. And we determined that this car had been in a fatal accident, involved in a fatal accident the year before. Which in fairness, believe it or not, we still would run, but this is a car that somebody else hit somebody else and that person, uh, unfortunately yeah. perished. And it was, it was a friend of ours. It was Justin Wilson, who um, was killed in an accident from an accident in Pocono in 2015. And we could have had that car and I could have run it. And I said, no. So could I have run in 2016? Yes. Mm-hmm. But ultimately those are those difficult decisions that you have to make and I had to wear the decision. And if I had to do it again, all things equal, I would have made the same decision because I didn't pull the plug just because it was in that accident. That was a huge reason, but mm-hmm. it also was a uh, mad scramble to get that car built up because you have to disassemble it, rebuild it, get all the parts, replace the parts that are aged. And it was this question of, can we do it in enough time? And I'm not going to put any questionable, unsafe car on the grid because I obviously not only my driver, but every other driver in the grid. So that's why I pulled the plug. Wow. I just got the exclusive on best 2016 Indy 500 experience here on the Never Stand Still podcast. And I'm honored. Beth listened to her gut and waited until she could get a safe car on the grid. All of her hustling finally paid off in 2021. But this year, because Roger Penske owning the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar, and then last year they announced the race for equality and change, I just shot him a quick email and said, tell me more about this. What What are you doing? And he's like, let's talk. So I was looking to pivot to sports car and I said, well, this is what I want to do. And then maybe eventually we'll get to IndyCar. He's like, why don't you just come to IndyCar now? I'm like, I'd love to. He's like, well, what if we work together? I'm like, okay. And Perfect. Then here yeah. we are. Yeah. This year, Peretta Autosport made history by becoming the first ever women-led racing team to compete in the Indy 500. But Beth isn't just trying to make history. She wants to change the trajectory of women's lives. Well, it's funny because I think if I had to do it over again, I would have pursued a career in engineering, just knowing how my brain works. But mm-hmm. I'm kind of the, the example of, like we say, we, we pursue things that we see or that are available to us. 
So yeah, is everybody going to, am I trying to get everybody to work in racing? No, no. It's just a high profile thing that you can see. And that might be attractive to kids to realize that these are careers, but there's two extra things at play here. I want to make sure that parents then will have the resources to support their kids because I didn't pursue anything in a STEM field because neither of my parents worked in STEM fields. So I don't think they had the ability to recognize it in me and be able to cultivate it in me in the way that they probably could have or should have. Now we're seeing a lot more, there's a lot of like summer camps and things like that, but that didn't exist. Certainly when I was a kid, it didn't exist five years ago. I mean, other than space camp in Huntsville, Alabama, but the idea that you need to have women invisible roles is a real thing. In fact, I always use the example of Sally Ride, because of, you know, but I need to get a a more updated example than that. But Sally Ride was a great example. First American woman in space. And after that, young girls went to space camp. Mm -hmm. And thank God for somebody like Sally Ride, who didn't need to see herself. She just kind of, you know, and I I have to read more about her background of what gave her the gumption to, to do it. But it is innate for us that we need to see, you know, that idea, you've, if you see it, you can be it. That's a real thing for women. I did it even in my own automotive career. You know, I'd be reading our trade magazine every week of people's promotions and new assignments and new roles and executive level roles. And I remember finally reading about this, this woman who ascended to a role. And I was talking to a friend of mine, like, you know, how do I start to get considered for these kinds of jobs? And he's like, oh, you need to work on your visibility. And it occurred to me years and years later, I'd been reading that trade magazine for over a decade. And it wasn't until I saw a story about a woman getting a promotion that I thought, well, what about me? I could do that job. I've been reading about every man under the sun. And I'm an educated woman of, you know, and I, I still did it myself. So we're not gonna undo that for women. So instead, the counter is to show examples. That makes so much sense. Of course, seeing someone who looks like you succeed helps plant the seed that you can do it too. We all need examples to emulate. And Beth is laser focused on showing young girls how cool it is to be a woman in STEM. But it's not just about racing or STEM. It's so much bigger than that. But then the last bit of why this is really important, I think, for women specifically, when we talk about equity, mm-hmm. we talk about education, we talk about jobs, but why? Because if women have jobs and they have financial stability and financial literacy for women, it gives them agency and then they don't have to be dependent on anybody else. That leads to full equity in society that we don't then have to choose or be dependent on somebody else for a roof over our head. And so at a very basic level, education leading to jobs, whether they be vocational, technical, anything, but that these things that could even be your interest can turn into a career and a career turns into a life. Yeah. I think it's a really powerful thought. I think financial security, financial health, it's just foundational. Right for everyone. Right. But it's like bedrock. And we don't speak of it enough. Right. I mean, you know, somebody made the joke and it's so true. Like we still, I don't know if they still do it, but remember like in, you know, elementary school, we learned square dancing, but we don't really learn (laughs) credit scores. I don't remember that part, but then again, I probably, on purpose, didn't go that day. day. Jim, the day with the big parachute. I love the big parachute, (laughs) but I mean, it was great. Parachute was a great day. But yeah, we need to talk about like why you know, we all hear about credit score, but why does it matter? What, you know, yeah. cause you know, when you need to get approved for even renting an apartment, let alone a mortgage. 
Yeah, I could not agree more. So it's funny because I mean, I just have this little race team, but like those are the things that I genuinely think about. That's why we had a partner in Money Lion and Money Lion did a whole campaign. It happened to be just well-timed, serendipitous, that they were about to launch their Women Who Roar campaign. And it was all about financial literacy for women. And it was like music to my ears because great, let's talk about these things and let's tie careers to learning how to save, learning how to build credit. You know, don't be a ghost. Exactly. I mean, that is part and parcel of what I'm trying to do at PayPal as well. It is exactly those kinds of uh, things that I think make uh, my job so exhilarating. That's the rewarding part. Clearly, Beth is passionate about using her position to drive women into STEM careers and promote financial literacy. Combining purpose and passion and making a difference Beth didn't just save herself. She's inspiring the next generation behind her to do the same. She seems like she could get through anything. So I had to ask if she had any wisdom for getting through the most challenging times. You know, I I lost my mom in 2012 and I lost my dad in 2016. And those were very difficult because the three of us were really close, as you can imagine, because having gone through what we went through, it's funny, people always, I remember learning that when people lose a child, basically it splits you up or you're together for life. Like it's kind of one or the other. And my parents were definitely, you know, together. And so the three of us were kind of like a three-legged table and my father had had some health challenges, but my mother got sick and died pretty quickly. And we were left reeling from that because we all would have, all of us would have bet that my, my mom would have outlived my dad. So that happened in 2012. And that was in the middle of when I was at Fiat Chrysler. I was, you know, high profile job at the time, a lot of responsibility, launching a car, launching a race program, trying to save NASCAR program, big things. In fairness, I think being so busy was is probably how I got through it because I was so, you know, I, I didn't have time to really think about how terrible things were. And so I just, you know, got through it. And then 2016, about a month after that 500, when, you know, when I pulled the plug, my dad went in a hospice. Oh, yeah. So when I, right. So when I look back at it, it's all ridiculous, right? And I wish I had a better answer. The reality is, you just keep going. And you know what's funny too, um, and I can have people corroborate this. I think, by the way, that's a great lesson. Like just- What else, what's the other option? You just keep going. Get up and one foot in front of the other, yep. And I think, you know, maybe because I was, and this sounds awful to say, but you'll appreciate this, because I was lucky enough to go through the experience I did with my brother, a lot of people don't get that lesson. We all talk about that lesson and we all, you know, everybody's, you know, has it embroidered on a pillow somewhere, but I saw in real time how precious life is firsthand. And I learned that at the age of six. And a lot of people don't learn, you know, don't, don't even lose somebody in their family until they're, they're like in their thirties. And I always choose to see something as positive and a gift, like there's a reason for it. I totally agree with Beth on this. There's an odd sort of silver lining to the tragedy of losing someone you love. Of course, it was earth shattering to lose my sister, but I'm grateful that it gave me an early appreciation for the value of life. And before we wrapped up our conversation, Beth had one last story about that old 1952 Ford F1 pickup truck her brother was working on before he passed. 
I'll tell you like the, the last little nugget. Years ago, it was like 2010, and my dad was like in that like reverse nesting thing that older guys do. Like, I'm gonna make this better because I know that I'm gonna die soon. That didn't happen. But <laughs> so I I lived in Boston. Uh, my parents were in Connecticut. I happened to be in Connecticut for that weekend. I used to have a Lotus Elise that I would store there. So I have the Lotus. Uh, I'm hand washing it. My dad's hand washing the truck. I worked for Aston Martin at the time, and I just had a press car delivered. So there's this $300,000 Aston Martin DBS in the driveway. My company car was a Range Rover. So I've got that, the Aston Martin, my Lotus, his truck, and then a Volkswagen, two Volkswagens that I had bought for my parents from when I worked for Volkswagen. So like every car, there's tons of cars. It looked like a used car lot, but that's my driveway in Connecticut. But my dad and I are washing. I'm washing the Lotus. He's washing the truck. And we're doing that, like sharing the hose back and forth. I've got my bucket and he's got his bucket of suds. My mom is like gardening in the yard. My dad said to me, I'm thinking of selling the truck. This is the 1952 aforementioned truck that he got with my brother and restored. I'm thinking of selling the truck. Now we've never spoken of this, right? My my dad and I, and I said, what do you mean selling? He's like, well, what are you and mom going to do with it? And I was like, well, if you're selling it, I'll buy it. And he's like, you'd want it. I'm like, that truck's not leaving the family. That's Michael's truck. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, I didn't think, I go, dad. And I literally point to everything. I'm like, that Aston Martin, this Range Rover, this Lotus. Like, what do you think all of this, my career and my life is because of that truck. I can trace my entire career to a VIN number and it's on that truck. And he took took the keys out of his pocket and he handed them to me. He goes, it's yours. It was always yours. No, that is a beautiful story. Beth, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure and a privilege and uh, I really appreciate your time. This is really so lovely. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Beth for such an open and honest conversation. It's so hard to lose a sibling at a young age. So I always feel a connection when I find out someone else has also been through that. The truth is our lives are marked by harrowing experiences that have the power to make us feel hopeless if we let them. But the reality is, even in the worst of situations, you have the strength to get through it alone. No one is coming to save you, but luckily you don't need them to. So what can we take away from this conversation? Can you trust that you already have everything you need inside you? Can you look to a mentor for guidance instead of salvation? And can you reach out behind you to give the next generation a helping hand? I'm Dan Shulman. Thanks for listening to this edition of Never Stand Still. Kidah.